0: welcome to Cassava Tech Talks, a sponsored podcast series powered by Connecting Africa, covering the biggest tech trends on the continent through interviews with Cassava Technologies executives, as well as independent analysts and thought leaders in specialized industries. I'm Paula Gilbert, the editor of Connecting Africa, and today on the podcast we're talking about Africa's connectivity mix and how satellite and subsea cables factor into overcoming internet connectivity gaps. I'm joined by David Oran, who is CEO of Liquid Dataport, who is responsible for developing Liquid's international connectivity business and submarine-cable investments. Under his guidance, the organization has completed three digital corridors that connect East to West Africa and develop partnerships to expand Liquid's reach across Africa. Also on the podcast with us is Dobek Pater, who is an analyst and director at Africa Analysis. He has 17 years experience in the telecoms industry and has worked on major projects in close to 20 African countries. Welcome to you both. Nice to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you, Pona.
0: All right. So we'll jump straight into some questions. Um, David, for you first. So um, when I was looking into the stats in 2022, internet penetration in Africa was still sitting only at about 43%. Um, so in your experience, what do you think are maybe the, the two key hurdles that Africans need to overcome to improve uh, you know, internet penetration on the continent?
1: No, thank you, Potter. and it, um At Liquid um, Intelligent Technology, for the last 20 years, um, it has been our our mission and our vision to expand internet access across the continent. uh, We always say we don't want to leave any African behind. And we follow these statistics very very closely. And we've seen in the last um, five years um, a rapid progression of um, fixed internet access, but there is still a long way to go. I think the two major hurdles we have in front of us is that we still have very limited <clears throat> infrastructure over the continent. We've deployed um, 100,000 kilometers of fiber, but um, that, that remains um, insufficient to provide internet to, to the majority of our of yeah. African um, people. Um, and this infrastructure is also very highly uh, expensive uh, to deploy and very expensive to maintain, uh, which means that the cost of accessing the internet uh, with fiber or with um, with a mobile phone has remained uh, higher than, than we'd like to, to have it. So we're working towards that in partnership with, with mobile operators, with other ISPs, with hyperscalers uh, to make sure that we expand the reach uh, in regions that do not have connectivity or access to those submarine cables uh, and we lower those cost over time.
0: Yeah, very, very good point. And I think cost is always a major factor, right? Um, Dobek, I wanted to pose the same question to you, but kind of get your view from the analyst kind of side. You, you know, what would you say are the key hurdles to, to internet penetration?
2: Um, so David uh, mentioned the key ones. I mean, obviously, infrastructure remains a challenge or sufficient infrastructure, If you you cannot connect to the network, there is no network, then obviously you cannot access the internet. What we had seen, uh, let's say, over the past decade is significant deployment of backbone infrastructure and that's in countries, uh, you know, cross-border between countries uh, within uh, urban environment, mainly metros. Uh, Liquid has been a significant contributor to building out that infrastructure Particularly in uh, southern to East Africa and into Central Africa, but so but but the infrastructure still lacks uh, or proper quality infrastructure often in the access or the last mile. Um, So even if you can connect to the internet, you cannot always use it meaningfully because uh, the the quality of connectivity may be poor, Uh, or coverage may be lacking altogether. In in uh, particularly in. Uh, in rural areas some of the other underserved areas so so coverage um, presence of internet uh, digital infrastructure uh, is a key point um, the other one is affordability ability to uh, pay for that internet access uh, and that that has two components one is uh, the the device you know you need a mobile phone which is still the main form of connectivity for most Africans, and particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa, or you need a router or a modem if you're using fixed connectivity at home or at work, um, and they need to pay for the ongoing cost of consumption of those services. So you know, if you pay for data, for instance, uh, on a prepaid basis, or if you are buying it on a, on a contractual basis, you need to make your monthly payments. And unfortunately, these costs, uh, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa, with the exception of a a few countries, tend to be quite high in relation to disposable income um, or in relation to what small micro-businesses can afford on on a a recurring or ongoing basis. Um, And then uh, probably the the third challenge is still coordination of uh, government intervention measures and enabling a more competitive environment. So uh, we may have infrastructure in place uh, but in order to reduce those costs and improve the quality of the, of the services, internet connectivity, we need an environment that's conducive to ongoing uh, significant investment, as David has mentioned, uh, and then you know, additional cost in maintaining those networks, uh, but also looking at other potential intervention measures in order to make sure that everyone's got connectivity and, uh, and let's call it affordable connectivity so that it can use the yeah. internet meaningfully and these don't always have to be only telecommunications regulatory intervention measures that are there are other intervention measures such as the cost of uh, custom duties for instance import duties for telecommunications equipment uh, whether it's the network infrastructure equipment or consumer device and user device equipment
0: yeah yeah, definitely a big issue there. Um, David, uh, talking more about subsea cables, um, what do you think is making these international companies like your Googles and Meta want to invest in in subsea cables specifically for Africa?
1: Yes, that's a good question, Paula. Um, subsea cables have um, been, from the very beginning, a key component of um, international communication and transformation continental communication, intercontinental communication. Um, and for Africa, it really started, um, you know, in 2009, 10, when we started seeing the, the major sea cables, like easy Seacom, um, sat three, and, and then wax yeah. to come in. And then there was a long period where we didn't really see any large subsea cable come into our shores. And we really felt it in terms of Uh, accessing the fairly limited amount of capacity compared to the rate of growth of um, internet on the continent. Now, there was definitely a need uh, to add uh, at least one subsea cable on each side of the continent, uh, as now Equiano has done on the West African coast, and uh, the two Africa consortium is adding both on the east one and the east coast, on the west coast, uh, two subsea cables. Um, the, I think the drive for hyperscalers to come onto those subsea cables as they've done across Africa but also uh, around the world is um, an ability to um, control the amount of data that they can actually uh, drive into each market <clears throat> without having to rely on intermediary uh, uh, carriers that like, like been the, traditionally our, our our role in the market. Um, the hyperscalers are coming with a very large amount of data, um, making sometimes more than 70% of the total traffic on those subsea cables. Uh, they are the main users, uh, the main uh, beneficiary as well, through their through their services um, of, that, of that demand. Um, What we've seen in Africa, in particular, is that the arrival of those subsea cables is linked to an upgrade of terrestrial connectivity to connect the different major cities um, of the continent, and then the densification of local access and and other fiber networks and and mobile networks to actually carry that capacity all the way to the device that that Dobek was talking about earlier. Yeah. it has really changed the uh, balance and the, play- and the roles of the different players on the industry. Um, as I was saying, traditionally, the international carriers uh, had this, uh, this investment uh, into those, those C-cables. Uh, and now we see the hyperscalers coming in and, and actually sponsoring or you know making very significant anchor investment in the, in the cables. I think it is a good thing. Yeah, um, it has enables uh, a step change for Africa. Now we're moving from a space where we had a few terabytes of capacity on subsea cables coming into our shores, to those cables bringing, you know, forty, fifty, um, and sometimes hundred terabytes of capacity um, to 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 the cable landing station, and then you know using network like liquids. Uh, fiber network to bring them to to the different pops and 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 moving this data around. Um, that is maybe yeah. not something we could have done by ourselves uh, given the size of the investment required yeah. and it has definitely developed the market, reduced the price of, of accessing internet and other resources and and overall therefore a good step uh, forward for everyone.
0: Yeah, for sure. Jobek, so what what has been kind of the general industry reaction to the additional capacity brought by these big cable systems?
2: In general, the the reaction has been positive um, for a couple of different reasons. One reason is when you have a multitude of cables, uh, it it provides a a form of security of service. Um, so you have you have uh, you have capacity as an operator that uh, delivers. Uh, let's say capacity and services downstream to other operators or service providers and ultimately onto the users uh, internet users uh, you want to have uh, you want to be able to connect to more than one cable in case one goes down and we've had an example now recently a couple of weeks ago on the west coast of africa where two yeah. cables actually uh, were you know, suffered damages um, and internet certainly in the southern part of africa has been um, the 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 speed or the quality was reduced so you want um you want backup you want uh, security uh, of services that you provide and the more cables you have the greater choice you have and you can have capacity in multiple cables so if two of them for whatever reason happen to uh, go down be non-functional simultaneously you, you can rely on a third or a fourth cable and, and it provides you additional capacity so as an operator you certainly want to be able to provide good quality services to your customers. So that's the second reason you have um, you, you, you able to provide better quality services with more capacity, international capacity. Uh, you also want to, you know, as David mentioned, uh, competition in the subsea cable segment ultimately ends up reducing prices of international connectivity. I and mean, you've seen those prices over the past 10 years Tumble, reduce significantly um, in magnitudes of of Um, factor. In in general, it's a good thing for the operators because they can uh, ultimately pass those savings on to customers who can buy more of a service. Retail prices go down, um, decline. Um, There is the downside that the operators ultimately hardly make any money sometimes on international capacity itself. It becomes very commoditized, uh, but that's the name of the game. Uh, as long as, as long yeah. as you don't have competitors who, it's called dumping. You dump capacity at prices below the cost of acquiring that capacity because they just want to get rid of it. Uh, then it starts to present unfair competition on the part of some operators. Uh, but, but in general, despite the fact that uh, you know the, the 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 profit margins reduce significantly on on. International services as an operator, you are able to increase the quantity of data that you sell to an increasing pool of customers, uh, and ultimately you you generate greater revenue and uh, and hopefully profit as well, albeit at a lower profit margin.
0: Yeah, for sure, very very interesting. Um, David, there's also been a lot of talk about satellites lately with um, Starlink and Leo satellites in particular. Um, so maybe you can just explain a little bit in layman terms for for people what what this means for kind of the connectivity mix of Africa, uh, the opportunities with with the satellite.
1: Sure, thanks. And it's it's very, very interesting what's happening at the moment. So very happy to to introduce that. Um, Traditionally, we have relied on geostationary satellites. They are very high up in the sky. Um, They have provided um, connectivity. I mean, we've been in the business for 20 years, and we started with this at Liquid Telecom. Uh, providing connectivity between Zimbabwe and the UK. That was the genesis of the company. Um, Until recently, that was basically what you could do. Uh, Different technologies, but really rely on those those satellites. Um, Limited amount of capacity, because they are so high up, uh, they've got to use a lot of power to to broadcast down. Um, Very high latency as well, because again, the distance that the signal has got to travel is, is greater. Um, now recently, you know, we've all heard about, um, Elon Musk, uh, SpaceX company launching the constellation that they call, uh, Starlink. Uh, we've also heard about, uh, UTELSAT and web merging and, and OneWeb being also, um, another constellation of low Earth orbit, uh, satellites. So let's call them LEO. Now those LEO satellites are many more. Uh, Instead of having one satellite, you've got to have a few thousands um, circling around the globe much lower, um, maybe about 1,000 kilometers instead of of 36,000, so much closer to us. Um, The physics of the orbit means that they've got to circle very fast, so they they fall. Um, And because they are circling very fast, you need many satellites to be in the air so that you can see at least one at the same time um, and to be able to connect with it. Um, those are multi-billion dollar investments uh, for those constellations, and we're talking about maybe five or six billion dollar co- uh, constellation cost, um, to actually launch them and, and manage manage them. Now, the benefit of those satellites is that because they are so close to us, uh, first of all, the the distance that the signal has got to travel is much less, and therefore, you know, you get an answer from the internet very quickly. So instead of waiting maybe half a second, uh, you may be waiting, you know, a few tens of a seconds. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a massive increase uh, in massive benefit for, for us. You're starting to be able to use things with satellite you could not do before. Um, so not only internet access, but maybe learning your accounting software or your industrial operations on the, on those satellites. Um, the second thing is that the operators coming onto the market at the moment, especially Starlink, have uh, introduced a very low price point uh, to access capacity. Best effort service, like an internet service like you got at home with your with your fiber or your phone. But uh, instead of paying something that would have cost you maybe 500 to to $1,000 per month to actually use the service, Starlink is now offering it at $50 a month. So yeah. it's a massive difference. And that means that the number of people who can actually use those services are vastly increased. You know, the affordability is so much better that um, people who could not dream about creating enough value through a service to afford $1,000 can definitely think about paying $50 as a small community or a small business or, or you know, a, a medium-sized uh, enterprise running different locations at the same time. Um, so it, it is it is a very significant disruptor in the satellite, satellite industry, but more widely in the broadband industry uh, where we could not bring uh, fiber before and satellite was too expensive. Now we definitely can bring a solution with a satellite um, using one of those Leo uh, constellations. Yeah. Um, I think there is an, um, a, a threat on some... Of, of the existing broadband market, um, where uh, the prices have stayed high. In certain countries, we see still broadband, sold in cities or even peri-urban cities um, at a very high price point. I think the, there are gonna be competition um, as far as Starlink and, and OneWeb can actually bring those services and be licensed in those countries. Yeah. Um, but overall, it's, it's a massive change. Uh, I think it's a good one, Um, and and us at Liquid uh, Intelligent Technologies and in my uh, area, DataPort, we're definitely planning to use those technologies to uh, increase our reach, increase the number of people who can actually benefit from broadband, uh, and and bring a whole load of of services around it to develop their activities, their communication needs, and so forth.
0: Yeah. So, Dobek, I'm interested, what are your views on sort of the hype around uh, Starlink and OneWeb as well? Um, we're talking about affordability. That's always been an issue with satellite that it's it's too expensive. Um, David was mentioning, you know, some of the plans are not so bad on Starlink, but what I've noticed when I look um, at the actual startup cost of buying the equipment, that's pretty expensive still um, for people who want to use Starlink. So, yeah, what do you think about the hype? Yeah.
2: Um- yeah I suppose at the moment it's uh, it's a little bit of a hype uh, i don't think it's necessarily much of a hype and and you're right affordability is a relative thing <laughs> you know what uh, what's not expensive for me may be expensive for someone else um, and across the board in satellite in the satellite industry we have seen improvements um, even on the geostationary uh, so-called c-band uh, satellite we have seen improvements in terms of quality of service Uh, And um, I'll get back to Leo now, Uh, but I think importantly, we also need to recognize the fact that in many countries in Africa, those geostationary satellites still provide an an extremely important service in providing so-called backhaul uh, to mobile sites, effectively carrying mobile traffic from mobile sites, uh, what people sometimes call towers, uh, in, in areas that are not reached by terrestrial infrastructure because you know, they're in the middle of a jungle or a desert, for instance, somewhere uh, you have a mobile site and and satellite provides a critical service in actually enabling that communication for that site to, to function. Um, on, the, on the Leo side, um, the, the cost has come down significantly. Uh, as David mentioned, it's depending on the country, you sort of 50 to $100 a month pre, uh, premium that you pay. Uh, but as you also indicated, uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, cost to enter into that or buy that service, enter into that market, is very high and can go up to you know, almost a thousand dollars in some instances to just buy the kit, particularly for businesses. Yeah, uh, small businesses that for many still represents just a, a um, an amount that's out of their reach. Um, also, with Starling, we've we've. It is licensed in five countries in Africa. Uh, might be a little bit, maybe maybe one or two more now, but I think it's still five. Which means it still leaves about fifty countries, uh, almost close to fifty, in which it's not available uh, locally. Which means you have to pay an additional cost uh, for a roaming service. You're able to get the kit and and use it to buy that satellite dish and you know the dish and the router, uh, and that's an additional cost. Yeah. Uh, so you, you, uh, as, as, a, as a community, you may be able to buy a service as a lower income community, but it's certainly still not affordable for individual households or individuals to use as, a, as an individual service. Uh, and it's mainly at the moment yeah. competing with uh, in, in areas that already have a choice of other broadband technologies, and that's fiber, that's fixed 4G or LTE, fixed 5G services coming into markets now, other fixed wireless access technologies. Uh, so, pe- you know, effectively, it's offering another product at the moment to individuals and, and households and businesses that can uh, can likely afford uh, another terrestrial technology. So, in that sense, at the moment, it's uh, it is uh, competing to an extent with existing broadband technologies. Uh, But it is going to, I mean, our is you need to give it another two, three years, and it is going to start presenting a a very viable solution, particularly when you start looking um, outside of the terrestrial footprint uh, into underserved rural areas of Africa. And uh, unfortunately, in many countries in Africa, that terrestrial broadband footprint uh, is not expanding quickly enough uh, for various reasons, but uh, it is confined um to urban centers and often to larger urban centers commercial centers in countries uh, and its rate of expansion is uh, is not uh, progressing very fast there are various um, there are various programs in place and, and pilots etc to to expand that footprint uh, wider and quicker uh, but i think it's yeah. still you know it's, it's still relatively slow progress at the moment
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, David, I think another perception around satellite connectivity is maybe that it's a bit temperamental. Um, Do you think there's any truth to that statement or is it a myth that needs to be bust?
1: Well, I think usually when people mean temperamental, they refer to um, the fact that um, some technologies that are run on satellite are adverse to weather in particular. Um, And it is a fact that um, the frequency that are used by certain bands, um, especially the Ka band um, on satellite, is is um, affected by, by heavy rainfall. Um, now I think that that is something that we have um, you know over time taken care of. It's it's not going to go away. This is physics. Um, the the Leo technology uses you know very similar bands. Uh, than, 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 um, than this, they use Ka band, Ku band, it's the same thing, um, but they are flying lower and therefore you know they might be able to power up a little bit more. Now, satellite operators have done a lot of work on you know being able to concentrate their beams uh, and sometimes actually react to demand and other factors to make sure that the service keeps uh, being of of a good quality. And I think we're going to continue seeing those new generation of of geostationary satellites uh, that are now, as they call them, software defined um, satellites, to to deal with that. Um, but you know, over time, uh, we're seeing a combination of technology being used at the at, at different times. Um, we we have now offering that combine uh a gsm solution with a satellite solution or a fiber solution and a satellite solution um and and they have different pros and cons uh that that you combine to to get a good service at all
0: yeah dobik obviously we know the use cases for for satellite um are huge and and there seems to be quite a lot of appetite in the industry but do you think it's ever going to become something that can replace um fiber you know on the continent
2: no, we'll never replace fiber. We're going to see growth of fiber. And says, you know, as everyone says, fiber is the best technology uh, from a reliability, quality of service perspective, just because of its uh, physical characteristics, uh, compared to a- any technology that is using airwaves, you know, whether it's mobile uh, full mobility or fixed wireless access that uses radio frequencies or satellite that also uses uh, frequencies. Uh, you know that they, they're always susceptible to an extent to some interruption. It's, uh, it doesn't mean that they are not good quality and want to improve in the future. Uh, but fiber effectively has um, it's, got, it's got two big advantages. One is the the quality. Um, it's it's just physical characteristics, um, and the second is its ability to have capacity expanded practically exponentially, uh, depending on what sort of equipment you use with, the, with those, those fiber glass tubes, let's say or that fiber cable. And uh, we're still a little bit away from that in Africa, um, and it varies from country to country, but if we are going, and we will uh, going in the direction of what's happening in, in some of the more developed uh, countries in Asia, for instance, in the Far East, uh, North America, Europe, where we effectively are moving to what's called a, a you know a gigabit economy, a gigabit society, where we, we do need uh, not only very large um, telecommunications infrastructure links between aggregation nodes, uh, data centers, uh, sub, uh, international cable systems, sub uh, landing stations, uh, and uh, you know things such as government institutions and businesses, but we also need Increasingly larger quant- uh, capacity connections to individual households. Uh, you know, fiber is still the best option; it will continue to be uh, for a long time uh, for, to provide that type of connectivity. Uh, yes, 5G coming into the picture. You know, it it it's uh, it's comparable. Uh, so there will be competition from other technologies. Same with uh, Leo satellites. Uh, but I think f- fiber, fiber still outperforms them and at the moment it's uh, from the way we see it holds that promise of being able to provide the underlying fabric um, in a a country in a society to start building that uh, that sort of the, the, the future gigabit society.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think it's always interesting. So, some of my friends always ask me things like, oh, is satellite going to take over? But I, I think it all has to kind of be connected. You need you need all the bits and pieces. You can't just rely on, on one thing. Um, um, well, we're running out of time a little bit here. So just maybe some final thoughts, um, David, maybe thinking a bit about moving away from specifically satellite or specifically, um, you know, fiber or cables. But what do you see as the top initiatives that African, you know, governments need to institute to try and, you know, overall improve access in their countries.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. That's an in, in, important uh, consideration. So at, at Liquid Telecom, we've, we've uh, worked for many years now. We've been in Africa for over 20 years uh, in very close partnership with government, regulatory agencies, local agencies, and so forth to make sure that the infrastructure that we provide and the service we offer to um, our customers are um, as in sync as possible with their own uh, government development uh, agendas and so forth. Um, maybe three things. First of all, we need a stable environment. So countries need to think many times over before they change uh, the laws. Of course, the investment um, context and and um, licenses that they provide the way they offer way leaves the cost of them the excise duties they might printing on the telecommunications sector and so forth because that has actually a very significant impact on what we do as a company and what our investors look like look at when they see us as a telecommunication company and that can actually have a very adverse effect on a specific country in terms of attracting the infrastructure that we've been talking about so first one the, the second one, and I think, Dobek, you mentioned, is very important to keep our borders open. Uh, Inter-Africa trade is, is very important. It is something that African countries are very aware and sensitive about, with African Union, with the, uh, the different regional trade associations that they are putting together. But for telecommunication in particular, the ability to cross those borders and to link those countries together has a massive impact on the ability to communicate, to trade, to exchange goods, to introduce new services at the border and so forth, so let us cross your borders, let's make it easy for us to do it. And maybe the third point is is um, it's maybe an obvious one, but in some countries demand is low, and it is sometimes the government's role to create that demand. To drive their digital agenda, to bring more services online, uh, being you know paying bills, uh, paying for services, you know getting your driving license, your birth certificate, and so forth, and and on the back of that, of course, invest in governments' assets, in data centers, in uh, connectivity, in you know the fiber to the next town, to the next region, and so forth, create demand as a government. So, that the business sector and eventually the consumer can benefit from that, that demand because it has allowed telecommunication companies, like liquid intelligent technologies, to come in, put the infrastructure at a risk, but with an anchor customer that is actually uh, driving that uh, that investment. So those are yeah. three
0: points. Yeah, all very, very important things. I think. Um, Dominic, my my final question for you is maybe how you think um, we've seen improved access and connectivity maybe change the world's perception of Africa and especially in terms of investment into the continent. Uh,
2: yeah, I think that's. Um, so we, we speak about the global village, uh, increasing globalization. Even though we have had some let's say slowdown maybe in that recently globally, I think it's still something that is going to definitely. Progress. And in order to for Africa to be able to be a full member of the global village, we do need uh, not only good quality international connectivity, which most of the countries in Africa by now do have, but also um, you know, it needs to be reticulated within countries through telecommunications infrastructure at various geographic levels. And uh, I think that the, the world recognizes the fact that, uh, well, twofold. One is Uh, that Africa is a big potential market and that's um, for their services. And that's why we see the hyperscalers, for instance, investing in Africa, because they do see a billion people and more in the future, as they say, with eyeballs and uh, using the Internet. (laughs) Uh, Google can sell more advertising on, uh, on its platforms. Um, uh, through the fact that uh, its services are being used by more and more people in Africa. Um, so, on the one hand, the, the market um, is the potential market uh, is there, the market is expanding. I think with the economic e- growth in Africa in many countries, that's going to be improving the spending power. On the other hand, I think countries also see that uh, there's probably uh, quite a bit of talent in Africa, and we see it in some of the countries like Kenya, for instance. Uh, not only, I mean, also in South Africa and in Nigeria, um, where, especially among the youth, I think there's a lot of uh, ability and and we see examples of uh, using digital infrastructure, digital platforms to start developing products and services of the future uh, that will enable uh, social and economic development and improvement. And I think the world sees that it, it can tap into that talent and oftentimes, that talent is still inexpensive compared to similar, similar talent in, in developed markets where it costs a lot more. Yeah. Um, so I think the, you know, the, when we look at improving connectivity and, and growing demand in Africa, uh, the world notices and it wants to make sure they can access the, those individuals in those markets.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we'll have to leave it there, but thanks very much. Thanks to David Oren, who uh, is the CEO of Liquid Data Port, and Dominic Pater, who is an analyst and director at Africa Analysis. Thanks so much, guys. I think it was a very interesting discussion.
2: Thank you very
1: much. Thanks, but our pleasure.
0: And thanks, everyone, for listening to Cassava Tech Talks. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We'll be dropping a new episode each month, so subscribe to hear more interviews with Cassava Technologies executives and thought leaders in the industry.